Let's be honest, most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today. Critical mass. That's what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces. Reach critical mass by joining Temenos Open Marketplace for fintechs. Opening up access to 2,000 of the world's largest financial institutions. Don't just take our word for it. Temenos Marketplace has just won Reader's Choice Best Emerging Innovative Technology Product and Service at the 2016 Banking Technology Awards. Join Temenos now. We make the money go round. news. We've been downloaded now in 146 countries and are at the top of the business charts in iTunes in the UK. So thank you. Thank you everyone for listening. We really appreciate it. Uh, I'm Simon Taylor and of course I'm joined by my 11FS colleagues David Breer and Chris Skinner. And joining us today for the analysis of the news we have Richard Piers, Director of Financial Services at Microsoft. So on with the show. And coming into the news, uh, we're quite fortunate to have David Breer and Chris Skinner, as I mentioned in the uh, opening. So, David, say hello for the audience. Hello. Chris, hello for the audience. Hello for the audience. And Richard, good to have you with us. Good to be here. Gents, uh, let's drop into the first news story um, without wasting any time. And David, there's a story here in The Telegraph that uh, the fintech boom risks fresh bust if left unchecked, warns the governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney. Is this what's really going on here? Is 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 he? You know, is there a sensationalist headline? Uh, what's happening? Yeah, I think there's always a sensationalist headline in any of these things, really, in terms of what we're seeing. But um, I think there were actually some pretty solid points that Mark Carney was actually making in this one. I think uh, not relying on fintech as a, a kind of a panacea of actually everything that's going to fix all of your banking problems uh, is probably a very sensible place to go. I don't think we're quite at the point where we're talking about a uh, a bust in the the fintech cycle definitely not in the sort of dot-com space sort of sphere that we were looking at before but um, I'm sure we know somebody who's probably a little bit smarter than us to talk about this one. Yeah so I spoke to uh, Adam French the CEO of Scalable Capital. So here I am with Adam from Scalable. Uh, Adam it's uh, nice to have you and the guys at Scalable Capital uh, back on the podcast with us at Fintech Insider. So there's some controversy that's been kicked up by uh, some remarks that uh, the Governor of the Bank of England, Mark Carney, made at a recent event. Can you can you tell us a little bit more about that, please? Yeah, sure. No, thanks for having me back, uh, Simon, on such short notice onto the show again. So I think that, you know, I think this is probably the best place to kind of clarify exactly what was said in the speech and it's kind of exactly what, what we wanted to point out off the back of it. Um, you know, the speech was, uh, was, was basically deep diving into all of the aspects of fintech. And on the whole, uh, Mark Carney was, was very, very positive. Um, you know, the idea that uh, you have the Bank of England governor talking about, you know, how fintech uh, innovations helping to democratize financial services is just a fantastic position to be in. But what, what really kind of caused me to, to write an open letter talking about um, kind of some of the some of the points which came out on the speech actually wasn't wasn't as much to do with the speech itself. Um, because at the end of the day, Mark Carney is, is mandated with protecting financial stability. 
um, you know, if he wasn't talking about the, that type of risks, then we'd probably be kind of questioning what, you know, what is he doing? Um, but, but my angle was more, um, you know, worried about the coverage, uh, which was based on one really small part of the speech, um, which actually became the focus of most of the articles that, that we saw published, um, which had quite sensational headlines. Um, uh, okay, so so there was some something here about sort of um, robo advice. Mark Carney says robo advisory is risky when actually it appears to be the case that what he said is that um, robo advice has the same sort of risks as any advisory firm. And in response, you you penned a bit of an open letter, didn't you? Can you tell us about that? Yeah, of course. So yeah, I think what I would recommend everyone does, and maybe you can attach it to to the show notes or so on this. But um, there's an 11 page document uh, that you know, which which has the has the the speech on the Bank of England website, which I'd recommend everyone to read because it's a fascinating thing. Um, and and obviously off the back of these these sensational headlines, I wrote uh, an open response uh, in which uh, my response equally got uh, sensationalized <laughs> to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reason why we wrote it was because we really wanted to start a kind of a balanced discussion, um, you know, in the, in the general public. My, my concern is, you know, when the public hear the word risk, uh, they completely switch off. Um, and ultimately, I'm a big believer that the, the robo solutions out there, including what we're doing here at Scalable, are, are really doing a great job at trying to create a, a, a better service uh, for our clients. You know, as a collective group, we're more cost effective, we're more transparent, and we're more democratizing than a lot of the other offerings in the market. And I don't want that hard work to kind of go to waste, as it were. So I really wanted to kind of come in and, and provide that other side of the argument. I wanted to wanted to start the discussion um, because, the, you know, he, he raises some concerns, um, you know, within that speech. Um, and they're really not outside the realms of possibilities. So I think what makes sense is to really start digging deeper, um, you know, as an industry, as a central bank, to be able to understand, you know, what's really going on under the hood. Sounds very, very sensible, Adam. Well, um, we will definitely attach that to the show notes. But uh, for now, Adam, thank you very much for joining us this week on the news. Thank you very much, Simon. Okay, so coming back in, gents, Richard, Chris, uh, any thoughts here? Is Does the fintech boom risk a bust if it's left unchecked? Do we need regulation here? What are your thoughts? Well, with any new development, eventually it's going to get regulated is what everyone expects. And uh, there's a very interesting comment from John Cryan, the CEO of Deutsche Bank, who we'll talk about again in a minute. But um, at Davos, he was saying uh, regulations are a great way of keeping everything as it is. Um, it doesn't spurt change or innovation at all. And to a large extent, the bank has been quite interesting with Mark Carney giving a direction for the bank to encourage a lot of fintech innovation in the regulatory sandbox, all the things that we're seeing that's been going on in UK as a leader in supporting fintech developments. And now I think it's just saying, look, we need to understand how to regulate these things effectively rather than let them go out into the wild and maybe create uh, consumer instability. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think we, you know, we've all had conversations around the Competition Market Authority and, and what they're trying to achieve. But at the same time, even when we're all trying to encourage it, you have to think about some of the risks. You put more actors on the stage that has the opportunity to create um, you know, more entry points, more confusion for consumers. So I think it's only prudent for, for Carney to actually, in his role, to actually make people think about that and make sure that what we're doing is we're putting in place uh, you know, secure, safe methods, as well as strong communication uh, to the consumers as this starts to, you know, to reach into their consciousness. Because I think it's largely been a business-to-business conversation. Mm. It's now actually becoming real. So we need to make sure that it's really well articulated to the consumers. I don't think there's two other headlines that relate to this one, which um, 
are interesting this week. One is that uh, there's a US white paper saying that the US regulatory structures is holding back fintech and not allowing the innovation that should be encouraged. And uh, the other, which I actually thought was a headline from The Onion, but it's a real news headline, is that uh, Donald Trump just signed an executive order that for every new regulation in America, they have to revoke two. I saw that and I thought it was a joke. Like literally, I thought, <laughs> I saw it, I thought it was just somebody playing a joke on Facebook. You know? yeah. but how is that? Practical. How is that going to happen? It's good news because now we'll just have Dodd and no Frank or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and also, we can look at more pictures of Trump draws, which I think if you haven't seen that meme, you, you definitely need to check out. But I think before we move on, sorry, like is is this a sort of a slightly feuding thing between where we're going with the Bank of England and the FCA? Because essentially, you know, we've got the FCA essentially standing up and saying innovation, uh, you know, keep moving these things forward, keep doing this. But actually now we're seeing the Bank of England going steady on, let's, you know, make sure everything's controlled. If you look at what Mark Carney actually said, it was very pro-fintech. It was extremely pro-fintech. And he did throw one caveat, which was, of course, if we don't make sure we regulate this right at some point, it's all going to, we've got to be sensible. But fintech has loads of opportunities, loads of op- So, you know, you spend 90% of your time talking about how good something is and the headline was the one thing you said we need to be careful about. Yeah. It, it, actually, this isn't either or. This is very much... I, what's really interesting about the UK policy environment is you've got a governor of the Bank of England, you've got a regulator, you've got a treasury function and a whole set of policy wonks in government that all seem to want the same thing, which is increased competition. Uh, it's just whether or not they can deliver it, I suppose. Um Next story up today is uh, one on the BBC, Chris, with uh, your friends at Deutsche Bank being fined by the regulators over money laundering issues. Uh, what's the uh, what's the deal here? Do you, what's the source of the fine and, and what's going on? Yeah, um, I mean, basically, it's the basket case of Deutsche Bank again, isn't it? And that um, they've been caught uh, allowing funds to be extracted from Russia to the value of about $10 billion, a mirror trading scheme. Um, that basically led to the banking regulation in New York finding them $425 million. In fact, they've had so many fines lately, and so I just saw they had $7.2 billion for their mortgage real estate program as a fine from the US. They got fined in the UK, actually, via the SDA, uh, $200 million, um, which was interesting because they said that uh, the UK financial system was open to uh, systemic risks, thanks to Deutsche Bank, for three years between 2012 and 2015. And it's just one of these things where, you know, they were called systemically dangerous by the IMF uh, last year. Um, the share price has tanked. Um, they've got huge issues, structural issues. There's a real question about their investment banking operations because it's not generating profits or revenues anymore. So I don't really know where Deutsche Bank is going. It's got huge, big issues. Big companies like that don't seem to close their doors. They seem to struggle on as zombies and then somebody's going to buy bits of it. But it just doesn't seem to be happening here. It's like this this theatrical thing in which it's falling over from left and right yeah. and, and not much seems to be happening. And they made $1.9 billion loss in the fourth quarter and you know, everyone um, is questioning John Cryer's strategy because it should have been quite drastic when he first became CEO. Um, and he's not really done anything drastic yet. It just seems like, as you say, it's um, you know, just walking along like a dead man walking. Well, um, I, I guess this coupled with the, you know, the headline from last week in terms of uh, you know, their CEO stating that technology is going to be important in five years' time. You know, like this doesn't spell very good for them at all, does it? Well, it's slightly misinterpreted as a headline because it, it did make us all laugh saying that you know, technology is now important and will be priority for the next five years. And what he was really saying is that um, 
technology is where they can see from a customer relationship viewpoint, from a risk management viewpoint, from an operational viewpoint, where they can get the efficiencies that they need within the bank. Mm. And that's where they, the investments are going to be made. That's the priority. Yeah. Um, but having said that, they should be saying that five years ago, not saying for the next five years. And I think people look to technology as this kind of, uh, this, this genie that they rub and then amazing wishes will be granted from it and that no yeah. skill is required. Whereas actually throwing money at technology isn't the thing you need to do. Throwing skill at technology and having the right people and having the right culture seems eminently important. And I guess, I don't know, Richard, you see this at Microsoft a lot. You've got the Azure platform, you've got things there that you know, have been, as an organization, I'd say Microsoft is one that has really transformed itself mm. in the last 10 years in terms of being a software company into more of a cloud-based sort of company. How you get the company. right new CEO? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I mean, I think that this is this is actually a really interesting story that the banks come to us for now because they're sort of saying, well, the born in the cloud companies are really good and we really like you know what they're doing, but they are born in the cloud. Whereas you know you you are a bit older, Microsoft. You're forty odd years old. You've had to go through a transformation, and that isn't just a technology transformation. It is, as you say, a business model. It's mm-hmm. it's people process technology and culture, uh, importantly. Um, and when you talk to Satya about that, you know, he talks to the heads of these banks and he says, look, uh, you know, uh, this is a long ongoing process. You've got to have a clear vision and, and the leadership is really one of the most important pieces of this uh, because middle management tend to resist because they've got some sort of vested interests. Um, and then skills is, you know, we're not about sacking people, we're about actually reskilling, but it's a long and ongoing process. When you look to some of the banks, and I think, you know, Chris, you've just highlighted it. The vision was not clear from the beginning for, uh, for these guys. They've not articulated it well and consistently in the context of uh, technology and digital transformation. And so, therefore, you know, there's confusion in the ranks. And then when we get into these organisations, um, quite clearly, you know, there's lots of different factions with different opinions of how you resolve it. With us, it was pretty clear which way we had to go, and it was still hard. At, at, at 11FS, when we speak to you know senior executives at banks, and often, more importantly, the C-suite, that the one thing they're obsessed with is, how do I change this culture? Because yeah. I know I need the technology, but first and foremost, mm-hmm. I need the culture to be able to deliver against mm-hmm. that. And that does appear to be the key question. And there are, there are lots of these little tactics that you can do to get it done. But actually, it's, it's hearts and minds, and it's, it's leading from the front to a certain Absolutely. degree and, and empowering yeah. people. And, and how do you practically empower people? I think it's really about making sure they've got the projects and the autonomy and, and creating the areas in which, when you're creating a new business, changing how you do change is the first thing well, you need to look at. Coincidentally, that's what I blogged about today, which is um, that the old bank is 100% different to the new bank. And it's based on an interesting report from Deloitte about um, digital transformation and digital DNA and saying digital DNA in a culture is a radically different structure to what most of the cultures of the financial institutions have, which is their legacy DNA. Um, and that's something that has to, ch- has to change. And I mean, to, to put it in context, with going back to Deutsche Bank, when I present, I often talk about the Deutsche Bank share price, and it obviously varies every day. But um, the last time I looked, um, Ant Financial is four Deutsche Banks, PayPal is three Deutsche Banks by value. And that kind of puts it in context. And they've got f- you know, a few thousand staff in those companies. Deutsche Bank's got 160,000 odd staff. You know, but because it's happened over 10 years, yeah. everybody thinks it's normal. And nobody thinks, hey, my market cap is, is the next at risk. But you know, are you the next Deutsche Bank if you don't get your culture right now? And you know, Deutsche are now in that position where I think you were right, Chris. They were saying, we need to do that. We know technology is our only hope here. But actually, do you have the right culture to be able to get there? So and the answer is no. Uh, funnily enough, I mean, it's, uh, I'm being invited in, you know, to talk to technology teams, etc., about culture 
future and what Microsoft is doing and others, etc. So I think you're absolutely, you know, talking about the right topic here because the money's been thrown at it. The C-suite have said I've been throwing money at it and I haven't been getting a result. Uh, the IT team's obviously got a complex and difficult job, but you know mm-hmm. th- th- there's some issues there. Culture is a really big part of it, but as you as you nailed it, it's it's not a quick fix, and people are kind of looking for a quick fix. I, th- I think the thing is that you know so many people talk about it, but you guys have actually done it to yourselves. Yeah, you? that's that's the thing. So actually, they've got you to show them how they you know you did it to yourselves. Which yeah, is, which and is I think fantastic. we're actually articulating it. Uh, I don't know if people have seen it, but you know we when we did Future Decoded, which is our big event recently. There was quite a bit on, on this sort of piece that came out. There was a big piece of research uh, that we did. Uh, subsequently, there's, there's you know, uh, e-books and so forth, which are showing not just, you know, the, the soft side of it, but also some of the steps, you know, what are the four steps you need to take in this area, this area, and this area. Yeah. So there's quite a few kind of bits of um, useful material coming out. Mm. We've got to do better of, of sharing that because I do think it's kind of one of the few you know massive scale cases mm. that you can really look to as a reference i actually spoke at a conference for you in new orleans last mm, year and and it was that track in terms of the culture piece was packed you know the, it was the it was uh culture and blockchain the, they were the ones that it was standing room only quite frankly so mm. clearly it's a a subject matter before we move on like where are all these fines going like where is all this these billions of fines going are they getting what, what are the regulators doing with them you know they like hand them back to the i guess to the treasury who then covers that as you know covering the the deficit i guess in taxation i mean the big ticket fines um, in the states are always inevitably on foreign banks um there are some big fines on domestic banks but it tends to be it's used as a political tool obvious reasons mm. so all the money laundering fines that have been of size like bnp paribas hsbc have always been on foreign banks mm. you know, not one domestic bank has had a big big fine sanction over money laundering in the us even though they've all been culpable of the same tricks yeah. what they have been fined for is mortgage foreclosures mm. and that's because that's domestically a good political vote winning ways is to say look we find the banks for being naughty and throwing people out of their homes before they should have done so if the big banks are being naughty there's an article here about in yahoo finance saying the neo and challenger bank customer base is going to grow by 50.6 percent compound annual growth off a very small base though, exactly by 2020 yeah. Yeah. yeah but off a very small base but let's say they've got what, maybe 500,000 or so in in Europe the UK maybe you t- top them all up maybe maybe less Chris is giving me a funny face maybe 200,000 <laughs> it's a it's a decent growth rate so let's say you know it, it's up worst case 100,000 50% a year 500,000 it helps if you bribe the customers to come and join I mean Aston Bank is offering 1% higher interest rates than the main four high street banks on savings so obviously you're going to get customers if you're bribing them But I I mean, you know, I take the point seriously. I'm I'm being a bit glib. You know, we we might have said once upon a time, you know, mobile phones, you know, there there are not many of those around at the moment, you know, and look what happened. So you must never be complacent. Mm. There are lots of challenger banks. Some of them I'm amazed about the sort of legacy technology that they've that they've built themselves on, and they're only going to be next year's legacy themselves. Uh, but some of them are doing some stunning stuff, and uh, I think that they're cracking their customer propositions. They're building their products. They're not quite, you know, they haven't broken the mold yet, so therefore they're not really breakout. But that I think they've set themselves the baseline to do that. So those numbers, you know, may be radically uh, greater, but it may take a little bit longer. And what I will say with that is that although at the moment we haven't seen the differentiated bank model coming out of Atom, um, it, it may well come out because they just announced that they've raised a further hundred million pounds of funding, which is two hundred thirty-five million pounds so far. Another hundred million by the end of next year, followed by an IPO. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think they will get there. Some of these. 
yeah. startups, but there's just too many of them, and I don't but see how the, they can differentiate. That's the way of the world, though, isn't it? You always yeah. get a sort of you know a massive blossom after the after yeah. the after the rains in the desert kind of thing, and then you know five minutes later there's only a couple left, and, yeah. and that's how it always is. In the 1930s, there were a couple of thousand car companies. By the 1950s, there were seven in the U.S. It's it, you know that will yeah. happen inevitably. We go through these these cycles, but, um, but, but I that, guess that type of growth, though, you know, like just looking at a Monzo, you know, actually for Monzo, have got you know hundred thousand. So in that type of growth would be you know about 800,000 is that right doing I, my maths right in terms I'm going to have to go to compound, compound annual growth yeah? calculator like that. <laughs> I present fintech I'm not a maths guy <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so explain APR to me at the same time yeah, yeah. But, but after five years if they've got 800,000 so you know it took First Direct with the backing of all of the might of HSBC to get only slightly better than that in like 25 years so you know arguably oh, that's first director only going for a certain demographic group they actually turn away a lot of applications but so, so so a lot of the challenger banks though right it's uh well that's it i think they eventually get to their saturation point of the demographic they're trying to reach mm. um and then the the growth will, will, will a lot over. of challenges are secondary accounts as well you know which yeah. people just sign up for to kind of you know kick the tires of it you know i'm a fan i support it i think it's going to do well but i think you know that uh you don't look at the headline number, you know, and read too much into that. I think it, as, as somebody like Gates or whatever once said, you know, uh, what you overestimate what's going to happen mm. in two years and underestimate in ten. Uh, the direction is you good. You just have to get Microsoft in all the time, don't you? Well, <laughs> you know, I'm absolutely PR'd up to the eyeballs. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm actually talking to Tom Bonfield, CEO of Monzo, later on this week for the podcast. So I'll uh, I'll ask him what success looks like. Indeed. And I think there's something about the, the culture of them and the product proposition that leads to growth. I mean, we were talking um, to some of the guys at Rainmaking um, Innovation a couple of days ago, and, and they were sort of saying that, uh, that the, the thing here is is not just culture. It's also the thing that you said on that podcast was, you know, it's all stick here. If you're a large bank with 15 million customers, and if anything, you're being told to shed customers. Um, one, these are nice ways to shed customers. But two, there are pockets of genuine business model innovation here. And that's what really, really excites me. But anyway, um, David, next story up is over at the FT saying the UK should prepare for an exodus of fintech experts. So, Chris, I mean, you're half exodus most of the time anyway. David, is, is this going to happen? <laughs> you are. You're, you're out of the country so much. You must like, there's a tax break in there somewhere, isn't there, in terms of doing it? But uh, but no, this. I live in British Airways Lounge. <laughs> it's very nice indeed it is too. So, uh, you know, this is the, I guess, the headline we've all been reasonably fearful of uh, you know like we've we've done a great job getting uk fintech to be sort of leading the world really in terms of kind of where we're going and actually the the fear really is and and kind of as alluded to within this article is while we're spending what looks like the next two years messing around trying to figure out exactly what brexit means whether it be hard or soft or whatever then actually all of the interesting people and we've definitely sort of seen signs of this now with with people actually already leaving in terms of doing it to find uh, pastures new with um, maybe a little bit more sort of advanced views on uh, uh, immigrants in terms of doing things so you know i'm i'm fearful of this one genuinely because at the point where we actually start to lose the the talent in the uh, the uh, the organization then actually it feels like we'll uh, we'll be on a losing battle but actually i spoke to paul aldrich who is the partner at uh, financial services technology which actually will give us a, a bit more understanding of what his view is on this one. Okay, uh, now I'm with Paul Aldrich. And Paul, you are the Head of Financial Services Technology and Functional Management Infrastructure at Odgers Bernstein. So what do you think about this particular piece? And maybe let's start with uh, what does Odgers actually do? 
Okay, so Orchard's Bernstein's uh, the number one executive search firm in the UK. We work across all industry sectors. Um, I work for the financial services sector, and we work with clients across um, retail, banking, corporate institutional banking, assets and wealth management, and insurance. Brilliant. And uh, I look after technology and operations for the financial services practice. Fantastic. So you'll be well, uh, very well placed to uh, tell us whether there's there's some sort of fact behind this in terms of doing it. So what do you think? Is there any sort of substance to this one? Are we seeing any trends of, of people moving away from the UK yet? Well, look, um, yeah, the numbers would suggest that um, within, within the UK, financial and professional services support about 2.1 million jobs, which is 7.2% of all UK workers. So we're talking about a lot of people here in, in, in total. And uh, other figures would suggest there's about 61,000 people um, in the fintech sector in, in the UK. So, you know, there's a lot of people. Uh, clearly, Brexit's um, raised questions about the ability for people with skills to move across borders. And, you know, Giles Andrews from uh, the chair of Zoppa has... Uh, has been noticed the same. There's already less desire amongst bright Eastern Europeans, Germans and French people to come and work in the UK. There's a nervousness about what um, their situation would be post-Brexit. So I think, you know, in the post-Brexit world, we're, we are living with uncertainty. And that is going to cause uh, people to pause for, for thought uh, when they're committing themselves to, to, to come and work in the UK, potentially. Um, although, of course, um, the impact of Brexit is, is a little way off. And, you know, fintech companies move quite quickly. So, you know, I, I think people will go where the opportunity is. I think there's perhaps more, there'll be more pull factors from other centers that might have interesting fintech startups of their own that are growing to as, a, as natural competitors to the uh, more uh, mature fintech hubs. You know, so people talk about Paris, Berlin, Geneva, um, ultimately, um, other centres maybe uh, as well, like Singapore, further afield. So I, I think you know a lot of um, centres are putting a lot of money behind um, marketing themselves as uh, fintech hubs, and you'll get more um, fintech startups uh, being based there, and that will create opportunity um, and greater choice for people in other centres. So you know maybe the impact is more about you know the growth of other um, hubs. Um, creating opportunity rather than a lot of concern immediately about Brexit would be my my view. Yeah, I think there's definitely probably multiple factors in this one, but it's uh, it's definitely going to be one to uh, you know make sure we sort of keep a finger on because uh, you know if we start to see all of the talent leaving the UK potentially, it's uh, it's going to be very difficult to uh, stay on top of the fintech charts as it were. So one definitely to watch. And, and Paul, thank you very much for joining. So look forward to talking to you soon. Okay, thanks. So thanks very much, uh, David and Paul there. I think that was an interesting summary. Uh, next story up, we've got one in Finextra where the Chinese central bank is testing a digital currency system. Uh, so the, the tests were run with the participation of several commercial banks by the looks of it. So you've got the you know, Industrial Bank and Commercial Bank of China, Bank of China and the and private WeBank. So it's interesting WeBank were in there. The bank is a very to... small bank in Scotland. <laughs> a wee bank. It's a wee bank. <laughs> 
I guess the um, you know the bank plans to set up digital currency research institute. They're staffing experts. They're bringing developing uh, big data systems, cryptography, blockchain technology. Um, I guess the uh, goals of this aren't really clear uh, from from the articles that we can find. Um, I'm going to have to do some digging. But it's interesting to me that PBOC, on the one hand, is kind of trying to regulate the Bitcoin exchanges and calm them down a little bit and stop margin trading, but hasn't regulated it out of existence. You can still trade Bitcoin in China. That's interesting, number one, because you'd think the one-party state would just shut it all down. Uh, and then secondly, the, the, you know, China never really does th- things by halves. If it's going to do something, it's going to really do it with all its might. Um, and we've seen some really interesting things from the Bank of England uh, around you know, central bank-issued digital currency. Um, the uh, Canadian banks and the Canadian commercial banks all together got together and tested a digital currency. Um, both the Bundesbank and the Belgian bank, the Swiss central bank. The central banks of the world have really kind of... Um, been captivated by this idea it may not happen immediately but actually the if they're all charging in one direction there's either groupthink going on amongst the central banks or there is a lot of peer-reviewed academic work going on and from what i can see it's it's the latter um, well, do we think there's an innovation competition yeah. which is that the swedish are saying they'll be the first to have a e-currency the e-krona because they were the first to have a paper currency in the 17th century but the Chinese actually were the first to have any paper money back in the 8th century. So maybe the Chinese want to beat the Swedish. <laughs> it could be as simple as that. Uh, to me, though, I guess um, you know, this, the, the PBOC has inferred that China's digital money would be legal tender backed by the central bank. Um, and it will enter circulation alongside traditional bills. In a country where you've got uh, WeChat as being you know, primary um, transacting type, if you can move real legal tender, um, it starts to look a little bit like sort of M-Pesa, but done through mobile apps rather than done through this sort of alongside airtime piece. So it's it's really, really interesting and one to watch. I guess um, we'll, we'll see more as this one develops. I guess, as you say, though, why do they need it? What's the what's the what's the angle here of why they really need this? Because so what's the difference? Basically, just take take physical money, physical currency out of circulation and hey, presto, everything's moving digitally anyway, right? That's what, that's what India's doing. Yeah, <laughs> yes, that was that. We've digitized overnight. It's the difference it. between a claim on the retail bank versus a claim on the central bank. So if my money, if, if I've got pounds in my pockets, I've actually hold a claim against the central bank. Right. Um, and that's tokenized value. Whereas if I've got um, kind of money in my bank account, that's actually the claim against a retail bank. Yeah. So if the retail bank goes bust, I'm, you know, I've got a deposit protection scheme that keeps me up to £85,000 now. Um, the claim against the central bank, well, they're the lender of last resort. So that I know that money's kind of good. Um, there's also then different commercial models. It also means, you know, if I give you the money, it doesn't have to go through a bank. So potentially it disrupts banks. It creates a different banking market. What do I need a bank for if I can hold money at the central bank? There's a lot of interesting questions that come up, but the Bank of England's central bank issued digital currency report from sort of five, six months ago concluded that doing this would make a real difference to the economy. They concluded that you could get at least a 3% uplift in GDP if they started issuing digital currency uh, themselves instead of what they do today whenever they're doing quantitative easing. So when they print money, they don't actually print money. They just buy bonds with money that never existed. So they go to the market and say, here's a load of debt. I'm going to buy that debt and here's some money that I just made up to buy that debt. <laughs> it's kind of crazy, but this is what happens at the core of the economy. Instead of doing that, rather than just kind of you know, making it up and as a ledger entry, they'd 
be creating real digital tokens, digital coins that could enter circulation as if they'd created real cash mm -hmm. rather than creating a ledger entry. So arguably it's more fungible in terms of... It's also just really interesting looking at China. I keep talking about China, India and some of the other economies as being the fascinating innovation economies. And it's not related to this, although it's from the same country. There was a great headline coming out of Davos where there's an interview with the head of Ant Financial. Um, and he said that within 10 years, they're going to have 2 billion customers, users uh, globally. And uh, when asked how they're going to achieve it, he said blockchain and artificial intelligence mm -hmm. that will be the drivers. And it, it, he didn't explain any further than that. It was just an interview during Davos. And I thought, I'd love to know, get under the hood of that one and find out what they're doing. Yeah, no, interesting because I'm the, I've seen some recent uh, consultancy reports that have pretty much similar conclusions. Like uh, banking industry is going to save 30% of all its costs. How? Blockchain. It's like, how though? Yeah, and and how? I think that, that second how is really, really important because there is a there there, as Blythe Masters yeah. likes to say, but actually you've got to get into the weeds. But um, we do have to move swiftly on. I think there's a good excuse for another blockchain show there when, if we can find get a guest from Alibaba or Alipay. Sounds good. Uh, so David, there's um, one here on Acumen saying uh, details have come to light after a Lloyd's cyber attack that we covered in last week's news. What are the new details here? Yeah, so I guess just a, a, this is one that's probably going to run and run. You know, this is the uh, ransom that was being held of uh, give us some money else we'll shut you down. In fact, give us some Bitcoin else we'll shut you down, wasn't it, rather than actual money. Um, so that one's probably, you know, people who think Bitcoin's actual money, we're probably going to get some complaints about that one, aren't we? Mm -hmm. So uh, apologies in advance. Um, but this is actually looking at what is going on now. So we've seen GCHQ. So they've called in the big boys. They've got the National Cyber Security Center into Lloyd's to give them some advice about what they uh, should be doing and actually how they should be handling this. So clearly they're taking it very, very seriously. Um, we haven't got any more details specifically from, from Lloyd's, but actually we did call in... Uh, Nira Jones. So Nira is the partner at Global Cyber Alliance to give us a bit more information about what she thinks Lloyds will be going through. So Nira Jones, uh, thank you very much for joining. You're the non-executive director at Cognisec. Uh, we've got you on to talk to us a little bit about what you feel the uh, maybe the Lloyds Banking Group guys will be going through at this stage. Obviously, with all of the uh, ransom uh, that they've been put under in terms of the uh, the hack that took place, really to get your insights in terms of where they're going. So what do you feel about this scenario in terms of what they're doing? And really, what do you think Lloyd's Banking Group should do? Well, first of all, uh, each time a, a large bank gets uh, under scrutiny by the media because of some sort of uh, cyber attack, whatever that may be, uh, it will obviously make the news because we like having word banks. So in this particular instance, it's a DDoS attack. Very, very little detail has actually been released on this attack to this time. I mean, we do know that they are working with law enforcement agencies uh, on this to find out the perpetrators. And, uh, you know, there are lots of uh, investigative journalists that uh, have been looked into this. And, uh, and it seems to point to uh, some cyber criminals. Attribution is already very difficult uh, when you look at cybercrime that actually noticed that uh, some of the websites of Lloyds Banking Group were vulnerable to attack, allegedly, so I don't know that for sure, uh, and therefore they wanted to point the finger finger out and launch a DDoS, DDoS attack against them, which lasted a couple of days, I think. That in itself is not surprising because we have seen DDoS attacks since last, last year. We saw the biggest one on Brian Krebs harnessing, you know, many, many 
things on the internet of things to actually perpetrate the attack. But first and foremost, DDoS and ransomware in 2017 are going to be big news because it's so much easier nowadays to do these things. Cyber criminals are so much more organized and it's very easy. You have cybercrime as a service now and you can just hire those services to actually perpetrate those attacks. Now, going back to Lloyd's, what are they going through? Well, they're obviously going through a PR nightmare because you don't like, you don't want that kind of headlines and everyone has uh, likes to have a, a, a bash at Lloyd's. But what would be the actual outcome of it outside of the PR nightmare? Well, not much, because let's not forget, banks are actually have the resources and the capabilities to protect themselves. And when criminals launch DDoS attacks, it, it can be various motives. It can be politically motivated, it can be someone that has a grudge, or it can be a smokescreen. As in, I'm going to launch a really heavy uh, DDoS attack, it's going to divert the security teams, and I'm going to be able to do something else unnoticed. Unlikely that that would happen in a group such as Lloyd's, because they are very large, uh, and I'm sure they're used to this, and I'm sure they have all the DDoS mitigation services that they need to do, they perhaps were not expecting something that would impact their operation as much uh, as, much as it did. Now, would Lloyd's, and I don't know this as a fact, but they're launching a DDoS attack, the services are now back up and running. Would they have paid the ransom? I, I should think not. You know, I think it was a £70,000 ransom. Are they a bad payable in Bitcoin? Did they recover after two days? Yes, they did. Did they, did they lose a bit of customer goodwill? Yes, they did during the two days. Will they recover? Absolutely, yes. People are not very, very soon going to change their banks straight away because somebody suffered a DDoS attack. It's, a, it's an interesting one, isn't it? You know, there's always the adage of don't negotiate with the, uh, the, the ransoms that are being put in place with you. But, you know, I guess for, for £70,000, actually, that's pretty cheap for, for consultancy. Base. You know, I've uh, spoken to many sort of uh, executives within banks that would actually see that as a pretty good trade. Um, you know, lots of them see cybersecurity particularly as a bit of an arms race they can never win. You know, this is something that however much they invest in people within internally of the organization, there's always going to be more advanced people externally to the, to the banks to actually make these things happen. And, so, and, and you're absolutely right, David, because... Uh, really f- funny, I'm sure you, you've seen in the news a couple of days ago that Austrian luxury hotel uh, that got uh, attacked by ransomware. And uh, and obviously the media said and, and hotel guests were locked in and out of their rooms. They, they weren't. It's just, you know, the, the overall system was affected and they were asked to pay a ransom. Now, aside of what the news reported, which was which was quite wrong, yes, there was there was an attack, and then you know they had to revert to manual processes and so on and so forth as they were fixing it. And yes, there was ransomware, but what uh, to me brought it home um, to your point is that the hotel director said, "Oh, it was just a normal cyber attack," and and that's where we're at now. Cyber attacks are absolutely normal. So therefore, to your point. It's not a catastrophe to suffer a cyber attack, or it need not be a catastrophe. It's how you respond to it. I completely agree with that. I think uh, you know, cyber is definitely just becoming a uh, a kind of a point of uh, expectation of doing business. And I guess for this one, with regards to what happens with Lloyd's, and like you said, this is definitely not going to be the last one of these we see. We'll definitely just have to keep uh, keep uh, an eye on it and see where we go. So, thanks very much for joining us today, and uh, look forward to having you back on FinTech Insider soon. You're very welcome. Oh, 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 oh,
Thank you very much, Nira, and thank you, David. So next story here is um, one on the BBC saying the savings protection limit has been increased. Um, I spoke to Dominic Lindley, who's the policy director at New City Agenda. I'm here with Dominic Lindley, the director of policy at New City Agenda. And today we're going to talk a little bit about the saving protection limit being raised. A couple of articles covered this in the past few days. I have one here from the BBC. Um, Dominic, start out by telling me a little bit about you know, sort of what is the savings protection limit, um, first and foremost. Well, the savings protection limit highlights how much of your money is protected in the event that a bank or other provider would go bust. And the changes come about because when the UK signed up to the European Deposit Guarantee Scheme Directive, we agreed a harmonised limit of €100,000 across the whole of Europe. And then because the sterling exchange rate keeps changing, the limit originally was 85000 then it went back down to 75000 and now it's going back up to 85000 so I mean, the uh, the change in the price of uh, your sterling and Brexit has probably really made a difference to to the amount that's protected because it's an EU-driven thing. Yes, and some of us would always have prepared to write into the European Directive that we could set the limit in sterling, so we wouldn't get these frequent changes. But unfortunately, we lost that argument. But of course, when we do leave the European Union and we take back control, we'll be free to set whatever savings limit um, the government decides. But of course, it is important to note that actually this European directive did have some benefits to UK consumers, because if you think back to Northern Rock collapsing, the limit was 30,000, then it went up to 50,000, and it was only with this European directive that went up to 75 and 85,000 now. Yeah, so that's a a really serious um, amount of protection. So when does this actually come into force? Will will it make a difference today, tomorrow, or is it it, um, something that's in the future? Well, the new limit is now now in force, so it came into force on 30th of January. Now, as to whether it will ever be enforced if a bank was to collapse, well, the short answer is who knows, but why would you take the risk? So for the consumer, you will certainly sleep easier at night by remaining below the limit. And if you're fortunate enough to have more than £85,000, then spread it out across a number of different banks so you remain below the limit. But it isn't quite as simple as that, as you'd expect, because some banks authorised under one licence, you only get one lot of £85,000 of coverage between them. So if you've got money in the Halifax, the AA and Birmingham Midshires, then you only get one lot of £85,000 protection across those three different those three different brands. Indeed, did beware of the difference between brands and, of course, the, the underlying bank. And um, speaking of uh, kind of things that are changing the shape of the industry a little bit. An article came out two hours ago as, as we're speaking on Finextra about the CMA issuing the final order on open banking. Um, and there's a couple of really interesting points here. Um, sort of the idea about open banking, you know, was always to make a, a transformational change in banking for customers and small businesses. Um, but there's some extra bits here about um, setting up some key dates uh, for when people need to launch this, and it needs to be done within a year. So, can you tell us a little bit about uh, this this additional piece that's come out from the uh, CMA here? Are you aware of this? I'm assuming. Yes. Yeah, so the CMA sets, has set the final timetable for the introduction of something called open banking, which will enable you to share your transactional data from your bank account with a number of different providers. And that could be very good news for consumers. You know, if you're like me at the moment, when it comes to your bank accounts, you have a kind of, you know, a big, a big pile of paper, a kind of big list of different internet passwords and definitely a really big headache. Whereas with open banking, new services will be developed 
probably by the, some of the new fintech entrants that we all hear so much about, which will enable you to see all of your finances in one place, to automatically shift money around between accounts, and to recommend the products that, that are right for you. Because of course, on you know, with certain products, banks don't like to give good deals to their existing customers. They like to leave you languishing in, uh, in poor paying accounts. And this kind of new open banking and transactional data will enable you to see when you can get a, a much better deal elsewhere. So it's a very, you know, on one side, it's a very good thing. And it's good that we do have a defined timetable. Of course, it's important that the setting standards for these, uh, for this new open banking, it's important that those discussions involve certainly consumer groups and definitely some of the new fintech entrants. I mean, I would always say you wouldn't, you wouldn't let the horse and cart industry set standards for the motor car. So we can't let the big banks set standards for open banking. It's got to be a large collaborative effort. I would agree with that. The um, the committee here of nine banks, uh, they always say a camel is a horse designed by committee. But actually, there's there's probably a need for a mixture of both because the big banks can definitely play a role. They have the majority of customers. They're, they're around. They can bring a lot of protection. Um, but at the same time, that, that mixture of voices is, is very encouraging to hear. So Dominic Lindley, that was everything we had for today. Thank you so much for joining us on Fintech Insider News. Thank you very much. And thank you, Dominic. Um, Chris, Richard, do you have any thoughts here on this savings protection limit? Um, Dominic made some interesting points about the fact that this was an EU directive and the amount being £85,000 then you know, was kind of negotiated uh, in euros. So the amount it's actually come out at has changed as the uh, sterling has fluctuated. But actually, when Northern Rock collapsed, it was £30,000, then it moved to £50,000, and because of the EU, it moved to £75,000, now £85,000. Does this disappear? What's that? €100,000. Yeah, €100,000 indeed. So does this, uh, does Brexit mean that this is going to go away? You know, is this something, you know, that uh, banks should be really concerned about, or is it just kind of a non-story here? What are your thoughts? Go away in terms of a protection scheme at all? Do you mean? Yeah, yeah I don't think so. I, I mean, I do quite a lot of work with the EF, uh, financial services compensation scheme, and uh, you know they're very much wedded to uh, everything that uh, the scheme will provide in this regard. And in fact, increasing everything that they can do to scale up. Uh, should there ever be any issues, you know, in terms of their customer service capability, their branding and communication that they do, uh, so that everybody, you know, you go to any website and you will see their logos around, so people feel reassured. And um, you know, my my sense is uh, it's a strange world, but you know that this is not going away uh, anytime soon. It's a key part of the trust within the banking system. Uh, we did an event with Lord King recently, and you know he emphasised the whole thing is based on trust. How could you take this big pillar away? Mm. Yeah, and that's the funny thing that people say in banking that. Uh, customers trust our brand. They don't trust their brand at all. They trust the fact that they'll get their money back um, because they're licensed and regulated. But I guess everybody's going to be licensed and regulated, right? You know, Atom will be under the same sort of, uh, you know, pieces here as, as anybody will, really, won't they? So the Atoms, the Monzos, yeah. or everybody, you know, £85,000 is £85,000. But that's the reason why you need about £20 million to launch a bank, because you've got to have that to, as a capital base just to cover the exposures. In fact, it's really interesting, um, again, I think it was last week at uh, Paris Fintech Forum that I was at, where uh, Matthias Kroner said it shows how venture capitalists really don't understand banking, because one of them came up to him and in the third meeting, talking about the funding round, and said, just explain something to me. You've got so many customer deposits. Why do you need more investment? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think that these protections are crucially important, but it does speak to the chasm between an investor community that is used to a scalable platform business 
and a financial services community that is heavily regulated. Yeah. And I think that because regulation can be used as a excuse not to do things or uh, create inertia, but it's also very real and does protect people in, in real ways. Um, and, and I have a and lot the of regulatory piece is the reason why it's a capital intensive business doing banking. And that is in many ways the barrier for most new entrants that they don't have the pockets deep enough to get into the banking business because it is a high cost to, to run a bank. Very true, very true. And uh, next story up, uh, Chris, we have one here on Finextra where the Competition Markets Authority has issued their final order on open banking, talking about specific timelines things need to be delivered in, talking about involving fintechs a lot more. Um, mm. You know, Do you have any thoughts here? Yeah, I think um, the authority in the UK is becoming a little bit Germanic in saying that you will do this by the end of next year. You know, it's like it has to be done within a year, and um, you know the banks are already on the case. Um, a lot of them talking about open banking initiative, what they're developing and enabling. I've seen quite a few panels talking about it, but having said that, I do wonder if it's just talking about it a little bit, and that um, you know creating a completely open. Uh, marketplace structure when you're a Lloyd's or an RBS where there's huge amounts of siphoned legacy merger and acquisition back office compendium of systems that don't have any internet relationship is going to be quite a challenge I think mm. yeah. I, and I, sorry we're doing I mean we're doing a huge amount on this topic as, as you would imagine and uh, yeah, I think it varies enormously because you've got those things which are kind of experimentation end. If you look at the Royal Bank of Scotland Bank of APIs, uh, which is really just for them to engage with the fintech community, hackathons and so forth. So it kind of just stubs out, doesn't really get into the back office systems. You know, but that's a great piece of experimentation, which they're learning a lot from. And we're always saying, you know, be agile, do innovative, you know, fail and fail fast kind of thing. So they're doing work there. At the same time, these people are still doing a lot of hardcore work to try and wrap up the legacy system and then obviously bring those two elements together. So I think although it doesn't seem like the jigsaw is, is forming a full picture, actually the edges are in and they're moving to the middle. So a lot of startups we talk to and a lot of fintechs we talk to about talk about achieving continuous integration. Rich, I guess you're familiar with this term and you, you must be aware of it at Microsoft and, and the things you do. Talk to me about how that's different from an IT culture perspective to be continuously integrating versus like doing change that is, you know, sort of military planned and, and out in front and, and that sort of yeah. stuff. What what does continuous integration mean to you? Well, I think, you know, when you talk to, we have some great guys who are far better at articulating this than I that talk about DevOps and they talk about what they had to do to change their mentality. And as you say, they used to sit down, they used to plan out the features of Windows or something, you know, and it was going to be the next release was in three years' time, and they would, you know, work out what they're going to do in terms of documentation and coding and testing and everything else. And then now it kind of stands on its head. It's a service. It's there. It's continuously being updated. Uh, and, and it actually has... Uh, you have to turn to instrumentation much more. You have to be able to really look at the signals, analyze the signals, and then actually respond to the features that are being used the most or that are causing the most problems. And you have to sort of have this much more you know, agile way of diving into the way that you uh, build and respond to the code that you've put out there. You can't do quite as much uh, of the testing, you can't do as much of the documentation. Now, I think there are challenges with that, and, and we've actually sort of picked up on a lot of those latter points, and now we're automating a lot of that. That's where artificial intelligence, you know, is actually coming to bear into the way the way of doing dev and test. But it is huge. I mean, it, you know, there were people who were writing, you know, blogs about how you know this was the end of the world that we were changing. But you know, clearly, it's it's the only way to go forward. 
I, I think the the really interesting thing from this this article is, um, uh, you know, so friend of the show Lawrence Wintermeyer, the CEO of Innovate Finance, actually was quoted in this saying, "Loads and loads of work is going to be needed to ensure that there is no backtracking by the banks as they implement the plans." So, uh, you know, I think reasonably quietly, I think definitely in the circles that we're sort of moving in, there's a there's a feeling the banks are going to do as little of this as possible, the minimum viable to get it over the line, to do it, to get to where they've ticked the box and they've done it. And I, and I think arguably a lot of what you're talking about, Richard, actually is is really, really difficult for the banks to kind of change these things. Um, you know, with all of the, the kind of PSD2 angles in terms of what we're doing, we love to kind of see the art of the potential, but they're so busy spending time to going to keep their head above the water mm. to meet what they have to do yeah um that seems like a real limiting factor you know? I, I mean you, you know they do sort of say you know you're, you're telling me about climate change when my house is on fire exactly, you know? yeah. so it's kind of you know it's about the order of the problem but i think you know we can't say the banks in this regard you know there are there are mess there are some who are absolutely out there are going to do mm. some stunning things yeah. very shortly uh, there are those that are actually doing better than than we give them than credit for and you're right there are some that are sitting there going you know well what's the problem you know we're just kind of we got lots of customers we got lots of assets it's all just you know fud it's also in the uk context quite interesting that um like the savings protection scheme with the eu this is our psd2 interpretation into the uk markets and what tends to happen is that uk wants to always be the best of the best in terms of how we do doing and implement these things from a financial markets perspective mm. when we say the banks you know and to a large extent they actually do things better sometimes than we expect. And a great example was the faster payment scheme, you know, because the regulator said, you've got to get rid of three day, four day floats and do this in 24 hours. And they said, oh, we'll do it in two, you know, two minutes. Mm. <laughs> yeah, it's like, so sometimes they actually do it far better than we expected. Yeah. And it'll be interesting to see what comes out of the open banking project in terms of, um, as you're saying, Richard, you know, some banks will really push the envelope, particularly, you know, someone like Barclays, for example, who like to pride themselves of being innovative with technology. Um, whilst others will have to pull the socks up. Yeah, and I think you know we do we do with a UK view. You can we can be a little myopic because I know we all travel. You go to Poland and places like that because of their legacy. You know, at the end of communism. You know, they're in a different place and they yeah. are able to actually move forward much more rapidly. Mm-hmm. And then you see things like um, you know ING with Vault. You know, cutting across into the UK retail market. Um, you know, this wakes people up. They go, hang on a minute, what's what's happening here? So you're seeing sort of changings of, of the world order, and we we shouldn't be. So indeed, and yeah. the Nordic banks as well mm. seem really, really innovative on this. You know, the Nordics generally are, are, are tremendously innovative and, and worth looking at. And there's a mm. there's a lot that you know if you're sitting in a large retail bank in the UK that you can learn from just sort of having a look at the recent press releases from Nordics or Eastern European banks or, sure. or some of the Dutch banks, for example. There's a lot of innovation coming from those areas that that really makes sense and could actually help with some of the practical issues. Which is, you know, I think the primary practical issue we here at 11FS hear from senior execs looking at APIs is, okay, we think we can do all of the stuff we need to do technically to be PSD2 compliant to meet CMA, but actually what are the business models we need to be able to take advantage of this new market? Like we don't want to be just the victim of this. Mm. We want we want to have new opportunities. Can we do marketplace banking? Can we yeah. sell other people's products? Can we start to serve markets in new ways? Can we start to look at new subscription models? Can we make money from data? Yeah, All these sorts great. of things. It's great at last that we're having that conversation because I've been saying for a long time, you know, that it's such a defensive conversation that we've been having for mm. so long and we need to get on the offense. 
well, you know, if you think of every other industry, you know, being transformed, there are winners out of it. Well, why, why can't the banks be winners? Yeah. Uh, why can't they take on this? And I think they are now. That's the debate. You know, they're looking at, you know, Internet of Things and, and sensors and streaming that in, being able to actually do things with that, which creates new value, new value chains, uh, new service uh, models for their customers and for their customers' customers. So I think that debate is happening now. And, and uh, you know, it's been a long time coming, but maybe that's just the order of things. Yeah, it's, it's certainly a great deal of opportunity out there. you just got to know where to look and who to speak to. Um, so, Chris, last story up today. There's one in the Telegraph. Uh, it says, asking, which country is the most corrupt in the world and where does Britain rank? <laughs> well, apparently Britain's shiny with our honesty. Um, but having said that, we are the capital of money laundering and uh, tax avoidance. So it's kind of a balance there. Obviously, a lot of countries that you'd expect are um, low on the list. And you may remember, um, I think it was the middle of last year, that there was a faux pas when the uh, sort of heads of uh, government from Nigeria were over here and David Cameron made some comment around how corrupt they were, which they did protest, protested that, you know, that they weren't that corrupt compared to others. And when you look at this list, it's, um, it's an in- interesting view. And I, I, you know, I, I like the idea that Britain, America and certain other countries are not corrupt, but it depends on how you define corruption. Absolutely. You can choose yeah. your own definition of these yeah. things, can't you? Yeah, there's, there's two great books, actually, um, which I just referenced, Debt and Treasure Islands. And Debt is all about how, through the centuries, the developed countries have kept the emerging countries in poverty um, through different schemes. Um, and that's the way in which it keeps the world order the way the developed countries want it. And Treasure Islands is all about how money washes through different um, sort of structures. And we have one, and the Americans have one of the best structures for getting money through different um, countries as tax avoidance schemes, which is why the Caymans, the British Virgin Islands, and all those appear in some of the discussions around those schemes. Mm, interesting. I think I think this is where we all hope blockchain will be. You know, really important. If you look at sort of you know the climate change agreement, if that still presses ahead, which we all hope it will. Well, then, you, you know, China, $23 trillion or something, it's actually got to raise to move from a brown economy to a green economy. So they've got to go to the markets for that for that kind of money. So you need something like a green bond market to be created, which is very nascent at the moment. Now, that is the sort of thing that needs to be built on blockchain, because if you want me to put my pension fund into something which is going to end up in China, uh, I need to know what the provenance of that whole value chain is. So there's big money, there's a great technology, and, and quite often when those two things come together, you can make something happen. Happen, and if it solves a little bit of corruption, well, you know, we've solved the, uh, all the problems yeah. of the world here this afternoon. I mean, I was, I was amazed the other day in a conversation around anti-money laundering with one of the startup companies that's focused on this using blockchain te- and distributed ledger technologies. And the guy who's one of the co-founders is formerly the head of global anti-money laundering and compliance for RBS and said to me that um, 98% of money laundering is not actually tracked or traced. Mm. Only 2% is caught in the system. And I'm going, that's staggering, considering how much we talk about anti-money laundering schemes and structures. You know, $1.6 trillion washes through the system every year, untracked and untraced. And they're saying, um, in terms of this startup, that 90% could be caught if we caught it on blockchain transaction yeah. ledgers rather than through the current system. And wrap it in artificial intelligence as well to get outside yeah, the absolutely. way that you can... Yeah. So I used exactly those stats on stage when I was invited by the ECB to give a talk at their Into the Future conference. And uh, I was quite glad that uh, you know the ECB, who have historically been very anti-Bitcoin, heard the message that, hey, actually, as much as I wouldn't advocate for Bitcoin being the currency for the world, just yet or maybe ever, 
the technology it uses, it's remarkably simple to spot money laundering on yeah. it. it. And actually, like you were worried about money laundering being worse on this. Actually, money laundering in the existing system is horrendous. You're yeah. catching 2% mm. of 1.6 trillion in there. Whereas on Bitcoin, it's trivial to spot it. Um, now, you might not catch and enforce all of it, but you can spot it very easily with a score chain or a chain analysis or any of these sorts of companies. And a good example of that um, discussion earlier around Deutsche Bank is that the FCA's fine was because they weren't doing the right checks on customers yeah. um, when they onboarded them. And equally, when the FCA or the FSA as it was then um, did an analysis of all the banks in the UK about five years ago, they found that 75% weren't doing appropriate onboarding checks wow. because they just don't have the systems and structures in place and, to do it. And I think if you're in a bank, you're in a position in which you are reliant on other banks for a payment. So it goes from you to another bank to another bank to another bank. And you can't see inside those organizations. Mm. You have to rely on some other bank to have their controls in place and you could get fined really bad. Like the banks you know, don't have it easy here. I, I'm, I don't wish to apologize for them entirely, but like that's not an easy thing to do, just the way the system's set up and most of the world's capital flows through it. So there's actually a real business case in terms of if you don't want to get fined anymore for these like money laundering things, you need to look at this tech a lot, lot closer. Yeah, I think. But if you look at the clearing banks in London, I mean, you've you've got a lot of uh, pinch points there that if you did proper work and analysis, you could see a lot of what's going on. And I think the problem is, is you know, the, the processes are written as sort of decision trees and so forth. And because I know they keep them very secret, but one, if you can crack that code, then basically you know how to work around it. But if you talk about machine learning, artificial intelligence, deep learning, neural networks, you know, you've got some challenges for sure, but you've also got a huge opportunity to catch this stuff. Cool. Well, we came joint tenth. We are trending towards becoming more trustworthy as time goes on. So, uh, I think bottom of the charts on this one was Somalia. So, uh, <laughs> if you can introduce blockchain for Somalian pirates, then uh, that would uh, do us some real good. I'll and just and make sure that they couldn't visit America. Yeah. And on that point, a lot of banks had to pull out of um, you know offering Somalian transactions and currencies, and you know there was a real kind of uh, impact in terms of financial inclusion because people couldn't send yeah. remittances there. You know, the the financial inclusion and the human cost of not getting AML fin crime right is is really significant. So you know by all means, not only do you avoid fines, you're also doing the right thing by by really looking at that technology. I'm surprised it's not a not a higher uh, thing up the list for most banks. Well, well, this is where M-Pesa and sort of it came in to circumvent the, the fact that so many people were unbanked, so it was all airtime based. So people circumvent these things if they can't get the money. Indeed. Fantastic. Well, that was everything with the news this week. Thank you very much for listening, everyone. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our podcast and please, please leave us a review on iTunes. We love Love reading those reviews and check out our website, 11fs.co.uk, if you want to learn more about what we and the team do. That's all for now. Until next week.